Welcome to Writing It, a podcast by Ed Adams. The Square, Episode 1. Weapons of Mass Destruction, Don't Let Them Get On Your Nerves, a novel by Ed Adams. Cairo, 1600 Eastern European Time. James expected this to be a short, sharp mission. He'd been paid and out of here in a couple of days. He'd hand over the bag and be gone. He sheltered on the edge of a dune. The vestigial grass had a razor-sharp edge, scratching his arm as he slithered into a comfortable position. Subaru was parked about 200 metres further away, concealed behind another dune. A long way ahead, he could see the tiny outline of the truck heading towards him in a shimmer from the heat. It seemed to be running above the ground because of the haze, and he could understand how people thought they could see water in the desert. The truck's progress was also almost silent, and then he heard a whine from what sounded like an American military diesel engine. He'd heard the sound before in Germany, where there were many of these trucks used around the bases, but here it seemed displaced. Through the sound he noticed a further noise, a slow throb which was getting louder. He looked around and he could see a speck in the sky, not a bird. It was bigger and tracking the path of the truck. A helicopter. It looked like an Apache as it became closer. An attack helicopter carrying a fair array of armaments. By now the truck was less than 800 metres away, still proceeding at a steady speed. The Apache was low in the air, but then suddenly, but languorously, the helicopter let go of a missile. It didn't fly straight, but took a lazy path from the helicopter, like the casual throw of a soft toy from an adult to a small child. But whatever it was, it would hit the truck. A second or so later, there was a flash, and it was as if time had moved from lazy to accelerated in a split second. As the missile hit the truck, a white flash exploded in a vertical line from the ground to two or three hundred metres in the air. The power of the explosion seemed out of proportion to the previous few seconds of activity, and James sheltered his face with his arm, the same one that had been cut a few moments earlier by the grass blade. Now he could hear a shrill electronic sound, and he realised that the helicopter was locking onto his Subaru, and was planning to vaporise it in the same way as the truck. He buried himself in the sand, rather than attempting to run. That way, if the chopper was looking for vehicles, it may not spot a lone person hidden by the scratchy dune grass. In the far distance, he saw a momentary flash from the ground and a black line crossing the sky. Someone had launched a surface-to-air missile. The black trail slid through the air towards the helicopter. He heard the Apache's engines squeal as it banked first left and then right in an attempt at evasion. It was ejecting what looked like hot metal strips. But it was too late. It was still too low. The Sam made contact with the helicopter, and in a much yellower fireball than the truck's explosion, he watched the helicopter drop to the desert floor. He low lay for longer in case there were any more surprises, but no. A few minutes later he was preparing his escape in the Subaru, alert to the thought that whoever fired the surface to air may head his way. As he climbed into the car he scratched his arm, remembering the grass, but as he looked down he noticed that his arm was bright red as if scalded, and that the hairs on his arm looked as if they had been shaved. At least one blast had been close enough to have scorched him. He felt his hair and noticed that part was matted, also from the blast. It had been a close thing. He floored the pedal, skittering back onto the road. 
heading away from the direction of the surface missile. 200 kilometres away, in Cairo, Karen Martin was sitting in the Hilton, sinking a drink in the Belvedere. She was waiting for a call from James to confirm that the exchange had taken place. It was supposed to happen at 4.30 in the afternoon, and now it was nearly five o'clock. This was not a pleasurable part of the plan. She had wanted to accompany James to the drop, but he had been urged caution in case of unexpected events. Karen had access to further resources, and by doing it this way, there was no obvious trail to follow to link them together. Then, suddenly, her cell phone started to warble. She flipped the phone open. Yes, she inquired. James came to reply. We have a problem. I'm on my way back. Without the invoice, continued James. Karen knew this meant something was wrong, but that James was not in immediate danger. The usual place, said Karen. The place they had arranged to meet was far from their usual place, but was a safe and random place within town. They had chosen it whilst James sat in a bar and pointed to a map of Cairo. Their plan was to use the meeting point on a signal date at a predetermined time. The time was 6.30 in the evening, when there would be a good number of people around to mask their meeting. So, the meeting would be tomorrow. Karen would move from the Hilton in the next few minutes. She had booked into two different hotels as a general precaution when she first arrived, and would now move to the other hotel while remaining checked in at the first one. This was to help hide the trail. The activity would be good and take her mind off the next three hours, whilst James made his way back to Cairo. She knew that his route would be slow because of the desert, but that once James was back on the main roads, he should speed up. She would not know what had happened until the next day, but at the moment needed to keep a low profile and not attract attention. Another 15 minutes and she was leaving the hotel, not taking bags and careful to leave her existing room looking occupied. She needed to be in the new hotel, but without the discovery that she had moved. Karen was using basic tradecraft. She knew that with an operation like the current one, it was less menacing when she was the contact and ostensibly alone for a meeting with James. She needed to know the location of the car and cases which James would provide and then hand the operation along to others to complete the exchange. Clean and clinical. She was the only one to directly meet James. James wouldn't see the rest of the team and they wouldn't see him. No direct contact and no physical contact with the goods. A cellular handover. Karen suspected that this was a bigger situation than the exchange of the cases. Her boss, Robert Alton, had called her in for a briefing about this a few days ago, but she had kept the entire mission very compartmentalised. She would know the transit team behind her, but for this one, she just had another phone number. Karen knew that the major aspects of her mission seemed to relate to the fronting role she had in this current situation. Sitting about in hotels, finding contacts and marshalling resources. Occasionally, Karen had to meet a target to relay a message. Nothing messy, dangerous or difficult. And through doing this, she had visited Washington, Helsinki, Toronto, Switzerland, Paris and Munich. Unlike what she had expected, she often used her own name and passport and appeared to have a travelling sales role for a marketing company. It was all very plausible and low-key. This was the first mission where the false identity was an absolute prerequisite. Richard Alton had been insistent. Karen made her phone call to the support team. We haven't got the invoice. She hung up and removed the battery and SIM card from the phone. James continued the drive. The Subaru had a four-wheel drive and dealt effortlessly with the trail leading back to normal roads. He kept within speed limits and made his way towards Cairo. 
His concern was that the car may have been recognised by the helicopter, but they would have needed to radio in some details before the missile had destroyed them. He considered it unlikely, and that he had a very high chance to be undetected. He cast an eye over his shoulder to the machined case he had been given to exchange for the ones in the truck. He'd known it was a special mission when he'd noticed the USB-operated electronic lock on the case. As he arrived back in Cairo, he headed for the quieter back area of his hotel's parking lot. James checked the car again for transmitters using a small gadget which could detect GPS, Wi-Fi, Tetra and similar beaconing, and everything seemed to be passive. He had done this when he left for the mission, but needed to check again because of the unexpected events in the desert. James glanced at the space blanket in the trunk. It contained a metalised core and would have been used to envelop the two small cases he had expected to receive. Back in his room, he swept the security detector across his own clothes. He showered and swapped to another complete set of clothes before taking his original clothes to a hotel rubbish skip. Anything to minimise detection. James hated the delay in this assignment. Whatever he should have collected was important and wanted by others, but was now also vaporised from the helicopter missile. James resigned himself to the thought he may not get paid for this work. It suited him to be freelance, to switch the work on and off, but the payments were results-driven and no bags would mean no fee. However, James knew that Karen worked for the UK government. It boosted his chances of payment considerably. Not all the money, but two-thirds. The Americans were not so helpful. They might not even come to a follow-up meeting in similar circumstances. James had already opted out of any second stage to this mission. It would be easy enough for the people organising things to get a replacement for him, and now that there was a risk they had spotted him, it was not sensible to continue. James was a professional and knew, unlike in the movies, that if you fail a drop or a mission, it is many times safer to walk away and let an unfamiliar person take over as a replacement. James had his brief speech ready for this, but also knew that his controller Karen would expect this. He checked his watch. He had a set time to meet Karen and wanted to be prepared. He would take his pistol and knife but travel light, so that if he needed to move away from the area quickly, then he would be able to. He positioned his car in an area close to the rendezvous point. The Subaru was noticeable now on account of the dust and desert on the paintwork, which on such a new-looking vehicle looked somewhat out of keeping. He drove the car through the complicated streets of Cairo and found a good place to park close to the embassy district. He French flipped out a French CD paper for the front windshield, which made the vehicle look suitably authorised, although by doing this he knew he also risked being on surveillance cameras. Then James walked out into the streets of Cairo. The nearby offices in their skyscrapers gave it the looks of a modern and rapidly expanding city, but James knew that much of the centre was ancient and labyrinthine. Without the air conditioning of the car, he noticed the thick air immediately. The effects of what was happening around choked the central area. Beset with environmental problems, there were old and highly polluting cars and taxis, creating a permanent yellow and orange smog, and a taste mixing dust with sand and copper. But the main things on James' mind were to get to the rendezvous. The original plan would have him hand over a small package to Karen, which was actually a decoy. He just needed to tell her the car location and registration, and her accomplices would have picked it up. He would have been wired the money to a pre-designated account. 
Now, instead, he was using the car as part of a contingency escape plan. At just after 6pm, he walked past the rendezvous half an hour ahead of the meeting time. No sign of Karen, but he wondered if she was doing the same. James, James scoped a couple of other roads and an alley which led to the water's edge of the Nile. He took the alley to check its potential as another route. Sure enough, a path ran along the edge, busy with traders and tourists. James rechecked his watch and then made his way back towards the cafe, this time expecting to see Karen in position. As he approached, he could see her sitting in the cafe's small terrace. She spotted him and started to stand. James heard a crack and saw her move sharply to the left, as if she had been punched very hard. Then another crack and he saw her lifted into the air about two feet off the ground and propelled into the next table, causing cups and plates to fall to the ground. He looked to his right and realised Karen's assailant was using a high-velocity rifle from a nearby rooftop. He looked back towards her and saw that she was now on the ground, but that everyone around her had scattered. James thought quickly. Karen identified him, but he had not signalled back, and at the time she stood up, a professional marksman had shot her. James knew it was better to move away, out of the kill zone, but without drawing attention to himself. Instead of turning, he crossed the road diagonally, as if in the same direction, but was now under the awning of some nearby shops. The one on the corner was a food store. He walked in, feeling a blast of air-conditioned air and a carbon taste of air filters. He walked directly to the back of the store and through two rubberized, semi-transparent spring doors into what was the loading area at the back of the shop. He kept going through a concreted backyard and onto a busy street. Several taxis parked in a row. He climbed into the first one and asked for the airport. It was an old car, no air conditioning and wind-down windows in the back. He felt the heat from the seats and opened the windows to force in more air. Cairo blurred past. James was only thinking back to the scene at the cafe of Karen and whether he was now in danger. James knew he needed to make himself invisible. He couldn't risk going back to the UK or even back to Paris. So much for this being a routine pick-up and exchange. He should have known that there could be trouble when he was quoted the high fee for the work. He knew that he provided extra trustworthy insulation between the goods and their eventual recipient, but not that there would be determined forces in pursuit. He quickly analysed the situation. The UK government had requested a pickup, but needed it to be anonymous. The main operation was in Egypt, so it was likely to be something with a Middle Eastern origin, just past the package to the Brits. Except, they had intercepted the truck carrying the package. By whom? But then the helicopter had been destroyed. Another group? And then his UK contact had been shot at in the rendezvous cafe. He thought he had escaped detection through all of this. His best plan was now to be as far away from Cairo as quickly as possible. James fiddled with the strap on the small day sack he was carrying. Just credit cards, identities, passports, cash and a few other essentials. He could retrieve a couple of other items from the parked car. There was too much risk in returning to the hotel. He had been careful with the car and the hotel room. They were both on credit cards and there would be an automatic charge through to the end of the week. He would phone the car rental company from the airport to state its location. He would say it had broken down and he had called a taxi. The car firm would send someone to move the car. They would be pleased to be able to start it and its removal would reduce his probability of detection. He decided that the United States was a good option and would allow him time to regain his thoughts and work 
at the next part of his plan. If he could get to New York, he had a superb place to stay off the radar. He reminded himself of the need to stay focused. His chief objective was to get out and to get his identity adapted. As he turned towards the airline terminals, two local helpers walked forward to assist him with his backpack to make a few euros. A small guy to lift his bag and a big guy to enforce collection of a service charge. They backed away when they saw his eyes. Don't even think about it. Soon James was through the mayhem of the airport and on the plane, sitting back in a business class seat. As he eased back in the seat, he could feel the tiredness sweep over him. It was like someone was draining all the energy out at a speed he could almost feel the rush through his body. He knew this was just a reaction to the events of the last few days. His brain was telling his body that it was now okay to relax and the 10-hour flight to New York would give him a chance to plan his next moves. In the short term, New York provided a suitable haystack for him to hide within whilst he figured out what was happening. The plane taxied, accelerated, rotated and was airborne. James was already asleep.